0: So welcome to Plum Creek Chapel, and I was just saying that last week I had to go out of town unexpectedly, so I apologize for that. I missed you guys. I was thinking the whole time as we had a 16-hour one-way drive and then back up to Duluth, Minnesota, uh, just how unfortunate it was that I had to, you know, leave uh, unexpectedly and missed you guys. But heard great things about the service. Appreciate Gary and Jeff uh, stepping up and filling in while I was gone. But great to be back in the saddle again today and um, looking forward to uh, what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. I do want to mention that we're going to be live tomorrow morning on Stand Up For The Truth Radio with David Fiorazzo. You should get an email if you subscribe to the Not By Works newsletter or you can just go to notbyworks.org and right there on the opening banner there's a button you can click and it'll say uh, click here to listen live. Uh, But that's at eight o'clock our time, mountain time, nine o'clock central. And uh, the whole show is dedicated to the the new book, Spirit of the Antichrist. So we're going to talk a lot about it, kind of give um, uh, some key points. And David's such a great interviewer. It's going to be neat to see where the conversation goes. But again, those of you here uh, can pick up a copy uh, at uh, at the back. All right. With that, let's uh, kind of shift gears and kind of take a look at uh, our continuing series on What Lies Ahead. And a lot going on in the world, obviously. Uh, last time we met, we talked about the Russia-Ukraine conflict uh, and how that might fit in to setting the stage for end times prophecy. Uh, one thing I want to mention just as a follow-up to that after you know, uh, thinking through what we talked about and where the conversation went uh, two weeks ago, is just always remember, it's seldom about what it's about. And we're getting a lot of misinformation and disinformation on the news uh, on both counts, you know, misinformation about Russia, misinformation about Ukraine. I think there's something much bigger at play, like we talked about, uh, you know, last time. Uh, It doesn't mean that the refugees and the innocent families and children in Ukraine aren't suffering. They absolutely are. War is terrible. War is always a uh, devastating thing and innocent people always die a lot of people don't know that uh when we invaded iraq after 9 11 over the next 10 years 1 million 1 million iraqi civilians died as a result of that conflict so i mean war is terrible so it's not a good thing by any means um but it's also not as simplistic as just you know russia bad ukraine good and and that's you know let's get involved in this political quagmire. So there's a lot lot going on there, uh, but you can't help but notice that players involved are part of the biblical picture that you see in, for example, Ezekiel 38 and 39 uh, with the nations that are mentioned there. Russia certainly plays a role in end times prophecy. So, uh, so we want to just kind of keep that in mind. We don't know where it's headed, how it's going to play out, um, but, uh, but let's get back to Uh, kind of the biblical overview, and we left off with uh, a look at several key passages about uh, the second coming. We spent some time talking about Revelation 19, and I want to finish that up by kind of closing the loop on the distinction between the church and Israel and the rapture and the second coming. So we, we had looked at some distinctions between the second coming, which is when Christ comes to establish His earthly kingdom, uh, which he will sp- uh, rule for a thousand years on this present earth, and then the reign will continue in perpetuity after the new heavens and the new earth are in place. So you can see that depicted uh, here. So the kingdom highlighted there in yellow is, is the, 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 when Christ comes back, and it'll be an eternal kingdom in the eternal state, but the first thousand years of it are of a particular nature, uh, particular characteristics that we're going to talk about next in this series. Um uh, and Christ will reign uh, you know, during that time. Uh, so there, that's the second coming. The rapture, of course, occurs over here on this chart on the far left, and the rapture is what puts an end to the present church age. So you can't really talk about the distinction between the rapture and the second coming without talking about the distinction between Israel and the church. So we talked about biblically there are five purposes for Israel in God's plan of the ages. Uh, and we talked about, I won't repeat these because we've, we've looked at it for a couple of weeks, but we also talked about there are five purposes for the church uh, in God's plan of the ages. And the last thing I wanted to talk about before we move on to the next passage uh, is the issue of the, of the blessings of being in the church age. So often I'll get into conversations. I remember getting into one at a conference uh, not too long ago uh, from, for a guy that, with a guy that was involved in Jewish ministry. And he was really struggling with the notion that, a, that anybody today in this present age who gets saved becomes part of the church, and that includes Jew and Gentile. And if a Jewish person gets saved today by believing the gospel, they then receive the blessings of the church, not the blessings of Israel in the kingdom. So if you think about the kingdom, in the coming kingdom, there will be Jewish people that are uh, kind of serving as the headquarters there in Israel with Jerusalem, the capital city of the world, and Jesus Christ sitting on the throne in the rebuilt temple as described in Ezekiel. Uh, then there'll be the church, which is ruling and reigning with Christ and helping govern uh, the, the coming kingdom. And then there are the Gentile nations, which are uh, people who got saved uh, after the rapture. They're not part of the church, but they're still believers and they're still part of the kingdom. And each group has a different role to play and a different uh set of blessings and uniqueness to their to that group so the church is the church israel is the israel gentiles are the gentiles and they'll never kind of become one or the other we're all part of the people of god but we have different roles to play and for all of eternity you and i will be as believers in this present age if you know the lord will be marked out as part of the bride of christ the body of christ and have this unique uh, blessing and we're going to talk about these here in a second Israel, on the other hand, has its own unique blessings, and uh, so this person I was talking to was struggling to say, "Hey, you know, uh, my Jewish heritage—it's important to me. And if I get saved, why should I forfeit the blessings of Israel?" Well, it's—he's it, looking at it the wrong way. Um, there, you know—there are incredible blessings of being part of the Church Age. Number one, and number two, all believers in all groups are going to have unprecedented blessings associated with the new covenant when we get into the kingdom. But these blessings that you see on the screen here are just for the church. And this is just a few of them. But first of all, right at the top of the list, the church age believers, we experience the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now think about that. Since time began, God, who eternally exists in three persons, He exists outside of time. He created time. But God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Since time began, the Holy Spirit has interacted with mankind in a variety of ways. He's, he's come upon uh, kings and prophets and priests. He's anointed different people. He's led and guided. He's convicted, rebuked. Uh, he has indwelt temporarily at times and come and gone in, in, in the lives of believers. But never before until this present age has the Holy Spirit of God permanently indwelt a child of God. And that is unique. That is what makes this age, uh, you know, unique. It's the church age. Unprecedented and unmitigated access to God. If you know the Lord, you can burst into the throne room of heaven at any time. You don't need an appointment. You know, I broke my hand last week. I think most of you know. And I've been in pain ever since. And I couldn't get in to see the orthopedic surgeon till tomorrow, you know. Well, if... Uh, which I can't wait for. I uh, can't wait to see what they can do. But uh, in a spiritual sense... If we have a need, we don't have to make an appointment. And we don't have to go online and get the first available appointment. It's not like trying to get into, you know, get a driver's license at the DMV. You can go unannounced any time, walk right in, and God is there to give us grace and help in time of need. Hebrews 4. And that's because ultimately, of course, because of the new and living way opened up for us through the blood of Christ, when he shed his blood, the veil in the temple was rent in two, symbolizing the new access to the holy of holies in heaven. And uh, He rose from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and gives us life, which allows us to have that reconciliation with God. There's no longer that chasm that was created by sin, that separation between man and God. So we can go any time right into heaven, and we can make our requests known uh, to the Lord. Uh, So the indwelling Spirit is, is with us at all times. He shall never leave us. Jesus told the disciples in John in the Upper Room Discourse, uh, that that uh, Thursday night, the very night that he was betrayed in the garden and ended up by uh, Friday morning in the tomb, uh, he told them, I'm, g- I'm giving you another comfort of the Holy Spirit that he may abide with you, what, forever. Now we read that and we think it's, uh, it sounds neat, it's kind of theological, and but I think we miss the significance of what that would have meant to the disciples coming out of a Jewish heritage, the concept of, forever connection to God was pretty powerful and that's what we have Uh, for example in Romans 5 you see the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us and in chapter 8 he says if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ he is not his unbelievers do not have the indwelling Holy Spirit that happens at the moment of faith the minute you put your faith in Jesus Christ the Son of God who died and rose again for your sins at that precise moment Uh, You're born again. You're spiritually regenerated, and the Holy Spirit uh, takes up uh, residence. And so that's a unique blessing of this present age. And it's also a foretaste of what's to come in the kingdom. Uh, In the the second place, another blessing is that we are in Christ positionally. So you hear me talk a lot about uh, positional truth versus practical truth. For example, if you're a Christian, positionally, you are perfectly righteous. Practically, not so much, right? Uh, I mean, I could point fingers and talk about the lack of righteousness in in this room, but I'm going to be gracious. Uh, First of all, I'd have to look in a mirror first. Uh, But so practically, no, we don't always measure up to the Christ-like righteousness that has been imputed to us. But positionally, we are perfectly righteous. That's called justification. We've been declared righteous by faith in Christ. Uh, and so this in Christ concept is distinctly Pauline. We don't see it mentioned anywhere else until Paul starts under the inspiration of the Spirit writing his letters. But we are united in that way. For example, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now some people read that verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17, and they, they say, well, I saw what so-and-so did, or this person over here, Claims to be a Christian, but, you know, I saw them out drinking and carousing and they're living a sinful life or they were behaving sinfully. So they must not be a Christian because after all, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, right? Old things have passed away. person who thinks like that doesn't understand positional truth versus practical truth. And they also don't understand that they too also sin sometimes. It may not be as visible, but we're all still sinners, Galatians 5 describes the fruit of the flesh, and it does list the biggies, you know, the the sexual sins, the other visible outward, you know, biggies we might call them. But it also goes on to talk about jealousy, anger, lust, uh, uh, you know, those uh, con- contentions, those kinds of things. And so, who among us can claim uh, to be free from those types of fruit of the of the fruits of the flesh? So. Second Corinthians 5.17 is a positional passage. The moment we put our faith in Christ, positionally we're a new creature. Like Jesus told Nicodemus, we're born again. We have a new life. But we still have that old man who dwells inside us and rears his ugly head, and the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit lusts against the flesh, the two are contrary to one another, Galatians 5.16, so that we don't always do the things that we wish. But because we're a believer in this present church age, we are positionally in Christ. And nothing can change that. We're part of the family of God. And thankfully, someday when we die or if the Lord comes back and we stand before uh, the gates of heaven, it's going to be based on our relationship with Christ that we are able to enter heaven. Not based on our own self-worth or how much we overcame sin or anything like that. But... Uh, Another blessing kind of relates to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but that's direct access to God. As I quoted earlier, Hebrews 4, let us come boldly before the throne of grace. Uh, You know, in the Old Testament times, they had to jump through a lot of hoops uh, to, to have that intimate connection with their Creator. And it was far less intimate because of the layers. You know, they had to go through festivals and feasts and sacrifices and priests and so forth. And some religions today still practice that. You know, the Roman Catholic Church, you can't go to God directly. you got to go through your priest, right? He's the one that can absolve you. He's the one that tells you how to have forgiveness. He's the one that gives you sacramental uh, salvation. You know, a little bit later in our worship service, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper as we do every uh, uh, third Sunday of the month. Uh, but we believe, the Bible teaches, that it's a symbolic remembrance. It's not something that imparts grace or imparts eternal life or imparts eternal salvation that comes only by faith the bible could not be more clear on that but some religions like roman catholicism teach uh, that you've got to jump through these hoops to have that type of um, access but not in this church age it's it's unprecedented and then the last one that i don't don't know if you think about much but another blessing that i wanted to highlight is ethnic unity A blessing of being in the church age is that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel took center stage nationally. And the Old Testament emphasizes the national promises to Israel. Now, sadly, a lot of people today, because of, you know, a thousand years of bad theology, uh, look at the Old Testament and they read individual blessings into it and they make it all about individual salvation and they just completely ignore the context and don't recognize that the Old Testament is largely talking about one nation Israel and their national promises many of which have not been fulfilled yet Uh, they did produce the Savior as the prophets predicted they would but he hasn't come back and taken the throne yet Uh, so in the Old Testament salvation came through Israel you You had to believe in Yahweh, and you had to become part of Judaism to be saved. It was called proselytes, right? And there was proselyte baptism and the things that they had to do uh, to kind of unite with the nation. But not so today. Uh, Today, it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what nationality you are. Everybody is one in Christ, which, by the way, is the way it was supposed to be from the beginning. One blood. We're all one race the human race, and that race was tainted by sin and corrupted and consequently in need of redemption. And that redemption comes through Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for our sins, and all who place their faith in him are then once again one in Christ. And it'll be a one world government someday, first ruled by the Antichrist in terror, uh, as I talk about in the new book, Spirit of the Antichrist, but then ultimately for all of eternity by God Himself and the person of Jesus Christ, His Son. So those are some <clears throat> unique blessings. Um, if the church is doing its job, uh, we ought to be leading the way on r- racial and ethnic unity. You know, uh, the, the, the world today in, in its uh, humanistic, pagan, uh, you know, secular worldview is trying to do everything that can to divide. And by the way, that's part of the Luciferian agenda is divide and conquer. They've got to bring order out of chaos. And uh, I have a whole chapter that talks about that. But uh, so they're making much about, you know, critical race theory and all this other stuff, wanting to divide, wanting to identify people and value people uh, and mark people by the color of their skin. What they don't understand is that biblically, this skin is just a temporary tent, right? I'm... I'm uh, JB um, and you could paint my skin purple I'm still JB just like you can cut off my arm or you can cut off my hand which I'm tempted to do uh, right now and I'd still be JB because this tent, this physical tent is passing away anyway um, You know, and, and it's just temporary someday this mortal will put on immortality this corruptible put on incorruption will be changed uh, so we need to recognize that uh, the church should be leading the way in ethnic unity. We should recognize that anybody, any human being who by faith trusts in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation instantly becomes part of the same family. It's called the family of God. John 1:12 says to as many as received him Christ. Uh, well let's back it up actually since we're talking about Israel and the church. John uh, 1 I think it's 11 John says, Jesus came to His own. Who was He talking about? The Jews, Israel. But His own did not receive Him. Remember, they rejected Him. Just like Psalm 118 says, they stumbled at the, the cornerstone, the stumbling block. But to as many as do receive Him, meaning anybody who receives Him by faith, in fact, John goes on to say, to those who believe in His name, He gives the right to become a child of God. So do you realize that we are co-heirs with Christ in that sense? We are children of God. We're part of the family of God. 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. I mean, that's amazing. And so let's not skip over that fourth one too quickly because the church today ought to, you know, certainly, you know, all racism is bad. I mean, it's, it's abhorrent. And it's abhorrent particularly... Because God made us all one blood. But the the secular worldview and the the Luciferian agenda <coughs> is to foment racism, to manufacture racism, to to identify people based on the color of their skin, and to cause and to, to create racism when it doesn't really exist, and then to do things that will cause actual racism to rise up. I mean that's what they want to do. So uh, these are just a few blessings, uh of the church age that I wanted to highlight before we look at our next passage any questions or comments yeah
1: so uh, back to the Jews for a minute so they're God's chosen people but because they don't believe in Jesus their prayers don't make their way to the Father okay but yet we've seen time and again where you know over the centuries that God is intervened destiny, if you will. Six-day war is probably most recent. So, how do they, you know, how, how they get around the fact, the fact that they're talking to praying to God, but yet he's not listening?
0: Yeah, so the question is the difference between an individual unbelieving Jew today, who's not a believer, who prays to God, to, to his God, Yahweh and the nation of Israel. So we have to keep the distinction between God's dealings with the nation and God's dealings with us as individuals. So yes, God, we see in Scripture, both in the past and prophetically, is going to deal with the whole nation regardless of whether everyone in that nation is a believer, right? So, you know, God, Genesis 12, uh, the the Abrahamic promise involves the land boundaries of, of Israel. So that is unconditional it is uh, an I will promise of God, not an if-then promise of God. And it's national. and It doesn't have anything to do with uh, who, you know, the fact that some may be a believer and some aren't. Um, so, for example, the, the children of Israel in the wilderness is a good example. And the book of Hebrews points back to that example. Um, the nation of Israel received the promised land. But not every individual who left Egypt got to experience it because of unbelief. Right? So Moses, prime example, didn't get to cross the Jordan. But he's certainly in heaven today because he was a believer. He had saving faith, but he didn't get to experience the national blessings. So the, 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 the verse that comes to mind about prayer is Psalm 66, 18. And there are many others as well we could look at. But Psalm 66, 18, David says, uh, he, uh, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. In other words, if, I have, if I'm a sinner, uh, God cannot hear me. Proverbs makes it a little more clear. Proverbs 15, 29. Um, the Lord is far from the wicked. And remember, in Proverbs, it speaks in black and white categories. We haven't gotten to Proverbs in our Wednesday night study, but it's going to be really neat when we get to dive into it a little bit deeper. I think we touched on it briefly. But uh, he says, if I regard iniquity in my heart... Uh, or, I mean, he says, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. And that's positional truth it's talking about there. A person who is saved has this unmitigated access and can pray. But the only prayer, if you want to think about it in these terms, of an unbeliever that God hears is the prayer of faith, this expression of, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, I know you're the only one that can save me, God, I'm trusting in you, that that kind of thing. Today it's it's specifically in this present age, the Bible teaches, the object of saving faith is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again. So I think it's not just Jews, uh, Ken, but any. There are a lot of uh, sincere, uh, genuine, earnest religious people who pray to their God, but it's it's the prayers don't pass the ceiling uh, because the Bible is clear. You have to right now. There's separation when you're because of sin. You know, we we've been separated from our creator and no matter how loud we shout it's it's not going anywhere but that conduit can be restored only by faith and once by faith that's been restored then we can we can pray so yeah i mean it's uh it's not about sincerity or earnestness or desire uh that gets you to heaven it's faith alone in christ alone yeah so are
1: the rabbis? Basically not preaching
0: the full truth. are the rabbi the question is are the rabbis misleading the jewish people absolutely and they did in the first century too in fact we're going to look at a passage in our study through acts this morning in chapter four and five uh where the early even during the church age the early jewish rabbis and scribes and pharisees continued to to mislead the people but certainly during jesus day you know they were the ones coming against christ now, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Don't listen to him. We're right, you know. Just, just follow our 613 laws. Keep your, you know, life in order, and you'll be all right, you know. So, yeah, they mis- they misled, for sure. Um, you know, Paul describes it in the Romans. Uh, I'm not a left-handed Bible page-turner, <laughs> so you're going to slow me down. Some of you are thinking, well, it's good he's slowing down. Um so in, in Romans 9, uh, verse 30, Paul sort of answers in a, in a way the question we're talking about, which is how can it be that these devout Jewish people who for centuries have dotted their I's and crossed their T's and been so sincere and earnest in their worship for Yahweh, how is it that they're not saved? And Paul says, sort of, asking a hypothetical question the way he puts it is what shall we say then Romans 9 verse 30 that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness positional righteousness even the righteousness of faith he says but Israel who pursued the law of righteousness zealously he goes on to say in chapter 10 has not attained to the law of righteousness why how can that be? And then he says, because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. And then he quotes Isaiah 28. Um, so, so, yes, the, the Jewish people and their leaders missed the simplicity of faith. He goes on to talk about that in chapter 10. He says, Faith's always been the way of salvation. Abraham was saved by faith. I don't know where along the way they shifted it and made it all about works, but they missed it. And so, uh, yes, unbelieving Jewish leaders have always been guilty of leading their people astray. Perhaps that's why James, the Lord's brother, a Jew, who got saved after the resurrection, in the earliest book of the New Testament, thinking, keeping in mind the historical context of, of the Jewish teaching model, said in his letter, be not many teachers, because they're going to have to give a higher account. Perhaps he was thinking about how these Jewish leaders had misled him and his brothers and other Jews into rejecting Christ at first. So, uh, yeah, good, good, uh, good question and comment there. Anybody else? Yeah.
1: So in terms of misleading, if the rabbis or the Pharisees back in the day didn't
0: Well, that goes to motive. So the comment is, if they didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God, they weren't misleading it. Well, yeah, they were. Your own ignorance is no excuse for not misleading, right? I mean, I can really believe the earth is flat and teach everybody the earth is flat. But if I'm wrong, I'm misleading you. I'm teaching you to adopt you know, a false teaching. Theologically, there are a lot of people who earnestly believe that you have to do good works to be saved. They're not intentionally deceiving. They really believe that. But it doesn't make them less wrong and it doesn't make them less accountable for teaching other people that. So they were misleading. I guess it depends on how we define the term. If by mislead we mean knowingly and intentionally, then no, you're right. They were they were uh, innocently, you might say, misleading. But it was still false. Does that make sense? So yeah, that's a good clarification. We, but, you know, motives... You know, are no defense, you know. Uh, I didn't mean to kill him, Judge. Well, sorry, that'll be 20 years. You know, that's just the way it works, right? You know, motives doesn't really matter in the end. So, yeah. Did you have a question? Nope. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry to put you on the spot. Anybody else? Okay. So, in our remaining time, let's go back and kind of take a look at another key passage about the second coming, by the way, uh, I meant to mention this at the beginning, but next week uh, I'm going to dedicate the whole nine o'clock hour to a Q&A. So you guys get your questions ready and all of you guys. Um, I promised a couple weeks ago that we would do that. And then, as you know, had some things come up and have been kind of distracted. But let's do that next week. Of course, you know, any time you can ask questions. Nothing's off the table. This is an interactive time. But I'm going to dedicate the whole hour next time to uh q So let's go to Matthew 24, because uh, this is a, a really key passage. We, we've spent some time here uh, some time ago. This is our 50th session on studying the end times, so it's been well over a year that we've been in this topic, uh, and it's been quite a while since we looked at the Olivet Discourse, but there are two places in the Olivet Discourse where Jesus Himself describes his return. And so uh, I know I probably am being repetitive here, but I know we're always picking up new folks and have visitors and people tuning in on our live stream. So I just want to quickly contextualize the Olivet Discourse. So we call it the Olivet Discourse because Olivet is the mountain where Jesus was when he was teaching it. Discourse means teaching or sermon. So it's a sermon that Jesus gave uh, atop the Mount of Olives. Uh, he gave it during the last week of his life, Wednesday, the day before the, uh, when he was betrayed in the garden, the day before the upper room when he washed the disciples' feet and instituted the Lord's Supper, and that's the night he was betrayed, Then by Friday he was laid in the tomb. So this is in the waning hours of his earthly ministry. He's in Jerusalem, obviously, on the Mount of Olives, and the context is he just... Uh, rebuked very harshly and strongly in chapter 23, the Jewish leaders. Uh, Earlier in chapter 21 and 22, he had also uh, had some harsh words for them. Remember, he cursed the fig tree. He uh, overturned the tables of the money changers, all of this during that final week. And he had told the nation of Israel in the first century that they would not see him again until they cried out in belief. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, fulfilling Matthew 118, that messianic prophecy. He had also told the Jewish leaders of the first century that he was going to take the kingdom from them, because they had rejected him, and give it to a future nation of Israel that was worthy of it. Meaning they had had the worthiness that only comes by faith. So the first advent of Christ, he was crowned with thorns. The second advent he'll be crowned king of kings and lord of lords. But As he was leading up to the crucifixion, the disciples are watching all of this. Luke tells us that the disciples thought the kingdom was going to come immediately. They thought he had come into Jerusalem, was going to inaugurate the kingdom, throw off the oppression of Rome, and and it was going to be the fulfillment right then and there. Uh, And so they're getting a little nervous because they're seeing him curse the temple. You know, not one stone will be left upon another. He said this temple is going to be destroyed. Well, how can he reign over the kingdom that's been promised him if there's no temple, right? So they're getting nervous. So they ask a question, and it's it's three uh, in the English here and in the Greek, it's three questions, but it's really just uh, almost like an ecstatic utterance where they're saying the same thing three different ways. But they say, "Tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age?" You know, some people try to make those into three different questions. I really think they're all they're they're just the same way of saying one thing hey, when is this kingdom going to come? They've been obsessed with the kingdom for three and a half years. They want to know who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. What are they going to get in the kingdom? Where are they going to sit in the kingdom? All of these things. And uh, and, and now it sounded like Jesus was sort of, uh, you know, talk, talking like the kingdom wasn't going to come right away. So they, they're concerned. So, Lord, when are you going to come and inaugurate the kingdom? That's essentially the question. And the entire rest of then the entire Olivet discourse, the entire sermon in chapter 24 and 25 of Matthew, it's also in Luke uh, 21 and Mark uh, 13, uh, is the answer to that question: What will be the sign of your coming? So verses 4 to 14 are general signs that'll take place over the whole seven-year period. It parallels perfectly with Revelation chapter 6 to. 18. It also parallels perfectly with Daniel. In fact, Jesus quotes Daniel and mentions him by name in this sermon. Uh, So he's really talking about that final seven-year period. You want to know when I'm coming back? Watch for these things. When you see these things, you know I'm coming again. And a lot of people, uh, I think, unnecessarily struggle with why would he be telling the first-century disciples this if it wasn't going to happen for 2,000 years? I've never understood why that puzzles people because every prophecy given is given to a moment in time but it doesn't happen for a long time i mean why isn't it equally puzzling that jesus that the the prophet micah told israel that jesus was going to be born in bethlehem and he told them that 500 years before it happened they didn't get to see it what about isaiah 700 years before christ he told the nation of israel that jesus was going to be born of a virgin or the messiah would be born of a virgin they didn't get to see it every prophecy is received by a nation and then it's and then it occurs or is fulfilled Later, yeah.
1: Question about uh, Matthew twenty four about Jesus telling about his return, and aren't there groups of Christians that like to metamorphize, I guess, or allegorize the idea that says in twenty nine, where the sun will be dark and the moon will not give a flight, the stars will fall from the sky. They use those terms as it's people. It's not really the the sun, the moon. It's not really having this real effect in in the.
0: Yeah, so the question is, aren't there people that allegorize much of Jesus' teaching here? Uh, And and absolutely they do. That's the only way they can do it if they don't think it's, you know, Jesus talking about his return. But I'll tell you what verse 29 uh, means when it says um, in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation, so this is the passage we're looking at. Uh, Actually, it starts in verse 27, but we'll pick it up in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation, that seven-year period that Jesus has just described, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Now let me tell you what that means. You ready? It means the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Words mean things, see? This is basic hermeneutics 101. Uh, Unless the text Tells you to do so, you don't have the right to just assign it random meaning based on something you think in your head. If that were the case, then we could never understand what the Bible says. Maybe when the Bible says you have to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved, what it really means is you've got to stand on a table, strip naked, and whistle, you know, Yankee Doodle. I mean, really. I mean, I'm being ridiculous, but that's. If you can tell the text what it means, then you can make it mean anything you want. But there's nothing here contextually, especially when you compare it with Revelation and Daniel and other passages that speak to the incredible cosmic moment in time when Christ comes back uh, and describe the cosmic events in the heavens uh, that would indicate that this is anything but literal. But yeah, they have to if they don't think you know that there's going to be a return of Christ to literally establish His kingdom on earth. Um, so... So the Olivet Discourse, basically Jesus gives all these signs. When you see these signs, you know my coming is near. When you see the abomination of desolation, you know that it's especially near. Um, And then at the exact moment of his return, uh, we see these things that we just read about. And then he says, um, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And that means they're going to see him. (laughs) Everyone on earth will see him. In fact, uh, Jesus had previously said, because there's going to be a great deception during the seven-year tribulation, unlike any time in human history. That's why Jesus repeatedly in this sermon warns Israel about deception: be not deceived, be not deceived, be not deceived. And of course, the Antichrist is going to be the chief perpetrator of the greatest deception. That's why the subtitle of my book, The Spirit of the Antichrist, is The Gathering Cloud of Deception. Because it's getting worse and worse, Second Timothy 3.13. Uh, but it will reach unprecedented heights during this time. And so Jesus has said, look, when people are saying, here's the Christ, here's the Messiah, here's the Christ, don't believe them. If you have to ask the question in that day, is that Christ? It's not. <laughs> That's what Jesus is saying. Because will it will be, it'll be universally known and universally seen. All the tribes of the earth will see. So if you're, you know, not saved today and the rapture were to happen today, you're left behind and you're part of this seven-year tribulation and you get saved, you trust in Christ after, you know, the uh, rapture. And so now you're looking for the second coming, Christ, you're trying to hide out from the Antichrist and, and, you know, Be saved from his persecution and murdering of of believers during the seven year tribulation. And someone comes and says, Hey, Christ, you know, Christ came. Did you see it? Well, he didn't come if you didn't see it, (laughs) because everyone will see it. That's the nature of this full circle, you know, moment. We can't interpret scripture through our normalcy bias. We need to step back and understand that the Bible tells a story. That you know comes full circle back to the battle between God and Satan that began in the heavenlies was brought to the earth and has been raging ever since for six thousand years, and one day it will culminate in another cosmic battle, and then all will be made right, all things will be made new. Revelation twenty one tells us, and at that moment it's going to be, you know, unlike anything anyone's ever seen. We'll be coming back with Christ to help Him rule and reign. So yeah, it's that's the whole purpose of. His description here is that the, you want to know what when I'm coming. Watch for these things. Yeah, Kelly.
1: How do those say? How are those who say that Jesus already
0: came deal with these issues? Where he says Israel's going to be. I mean, we're going to be. Israel's going to be saved, and, and the world's going to be judged.
1: If we're living in where it's been judged, what's the big deal?
0: Yeah. So the question is, how do those people who say that the second coming has already happened, which, by the way, they're out there. They're called preterists. <laughs> Uh, They believe that all of this that Jesus talked about has already been fulfilled in the first century. Christ came back. I'm sorry you missed it, and I hope you're enjoying the kingdom. Personally, I thought it was going to be better than this, but anyway, they think we're living in the kingdom. Uh, how, How do they answer these objections? Well, again, it's all about allegorizing. If you get to determine the meaning rather than letting the plain, normal meaning of words dictate what it means, letting the author dictate what it means, then you can make it mean whatever you want. So, so they, uh, they get around it in a number of ways, but they describe, uh, for example, the, in 70 A.D. when Rome destroyed uh, Herod's temple and J- J- Jerusalem, they say, well, the smoke that billowed up over the city, uh, re- that represents the sun darkening and the moon darkening because you couldn't see it because of the smoke. Well, that doesn't at all sound like what Jesus says. He's not talking about a little global uh, and a little regional thing. It's a global thing. Same thing that people do when they try to say, well, the flood was just a, you know, high water. It was a flash flood around the streets of Jerusalem, you know. Uh, no, it was global, and we know that because the text tells us that. So, um, yeah, they, they really do, uh, you know, hermeneutical gymnastics here with the text and make it see what they want. We talked about here recently, I don't remember when, but it's fresh in my mind, so it have not been too long about how they do the same thing with revelation every section of revelation they believe is recapitulating the church age so the seal judgments that's the church age the trumpet judgments that's the church age the bowl judgments that's the church age the thousand year millennium that's the church age right satan is actually bound right now in prison wow i mean a lot of people that didn't get that memo i mean <laughs> anthony fauci and bill gates and I mean, they sort of don't think he's bound up. And you just look at the evil around us. I mean, the, how can the how can John say the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, and yet John say Satan is bound up in this present age? That's a self-contradiction. So, uh, And John wrote Revelation, and he says both. So that they just have a, a fundamental difference in how they interpret Scripture, not questioning their love for the Lord or their sincerity. uh I just think they're wrong and they're dead wrong about a very important subject. And we believe that that we, that we 16% of the Bible is yet future and we look forward to the fulfillment of this prophecy and we think we should study it. Right. So we'll stop there. Uh, let's look forward next week to um, a great you know, Q&A, bring your questions. Don't forget tomorrow morning if you've got the time and inclination uh, at 8 o'clock Mountain Time, 9 o'clock Central, 10 Eastern. You can uh, click the button on the Not By Works on the banner there and tune in live to the uh, interview with Standard for the Truth Radio. Really looking forward. David's just such a dear friend. He's been in our church, as you know, and does a great job of interacting. So look forward to that. And we'll take a break. For those of you live streaming, we'll be back at about 1030, give or take five minutes. I know that's tough. You kind of have to sit by your computer and wait, but... Uh, It kind of depends on how the flow of the service goes, but we'll be back with the Sunday message here roughly around 10.30 Mountain Time. Okay, God bless.